This is episode 208 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Vinyl. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. I've got a Zoom full of people today. And first, I want to mention my co-conspirator, Bill Aho. It's been pointed out to me that I have not introduced him properly on the show. Um, And since today is kind of a full day, I won't take a lot of time, but I will say how much I appreciate Bill helping with the show and bringing uh, such interesting guests on as we have today. And I'll also just say that you never know where bowling can take you. (laughs) And I'll, I'll leave a fuller introduction for another day. Uh, But with us today are John Teichman and Jeff Walker. And John and Jeff are friends, not just random people that we've stuck on the podcast together. (laughs) Thank goodness. Uh, In fact, they've known each other for 45 years from their days back in Marquette, Michigan. We're getting a real theme here on this show about Marquette. John got interested in vinyl when he was an undergrad at Bowling Green State University and hosted a radio show called the Rock and Roll Power Hours. I would love to hear some archives of that show. He was intensely interested in music and even booked Jeff's band, Gravatar, to come play on campus. He went back to NMU to work as an admissions counselor and has been in higher ed now for 23 years, where he amuses students and parents with his collection of rock and roll posters in his office, including David Bowie and Frank Zappa and so on. He and his wife also opened a collectible store in Marquette called the Emporium featuring vintage vinyl, which is our topic for today. He writes, looking at this brief summary, It's wonderful how life can come full circle with new adventures, discoveries waiting down the road. When that 15-year-old walks into our shop looking for electric light orchestra, pretty open-minded kid, I have to say, I feel fortunate that I get to provide a window into a larger world of music slash culture beyond the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That's so cool. Uh, So actually, both Jeff and John were kind enough to write nice bios for me, and I really appreciate that. Uh, And now Jeff, he's also a youper. See how I worked that in there. (laughs) He wrote, I started buying records as soon as I had money. I really love that. We had that one episode where we talked about our early experiences with music. And yeah, I, I can imagine when I first started getting money too. I was like, what do I spend this on music? He started playing in bands in high school, worked in record stores, promoted shows, etc. 
while he was attending the University of Michigan. And then he went west and got a master's in expressive arts therapy, which sounds to me like he must have gone to California, (laughs) moved back to Michigan and opened a counseling office. He also had a bunch of vinyl and a brother with a connection. So he started the Or Doc Brewing Company show in Marquette, which is a sale collectibles vinyl event that John got involved in then eight years ago and has turned into this massive multi-day event that they hold in multiple cities around Michigan. So it's clear that we have some serious vinyl folks on our hands here today. Is there a word for people who are crazy about vinyl? Like vinyl heads? Poor. (laughs) Poor. (laughs) I was thinking. I was thinking. Bill, we're we're so rich. We're so rich. We have so many riches around us, whether we have money in our pockets or not. Right. Vinyl kings or something (laughs) like that. Yeah. Right. Anyway, welcome to the show, Bill, John, and Jeff. Thank Thank you. Thank you. You know, we always hear all the time that records are making a comeback. Probably every year we hear that on the news or someplace. But for the collectors, you know, it, it never really left. We've always had vinyl there, maybe not as much of the new stuff. But what, do you, what are your thoughts on records coming back, supposedly? Well, I have a lot of affection for what's happening just because the variety of stuff that that turns up um, in, I mean, I, I like to joke with Jeff when I started doing this, I had this many records mm. and now all of the available space and our home and our shop is filled with records and the abundance is amazing. Um, it, you, you make a really good point that it never really left. But I think the thing that's changed is that these records are now being featured in commercials on television and in movies. And, and it's, it's just sort of this, like throwing a baseball around the front yard or playing frisbee it's it's become a lifestyle presentation piece that it wasn't i think 15 or 25 years ago and that like the fact that it's introduced into the culture in really wild ways makes people want to be a part of it in a real immediate way yes and and i think that it's important to note that that the record industry foisted upon us uh, a, a false idea. They brought out this belief or, or, or created a belief in, in the majority of people that they don't make records anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, when CDs were new, everybody was excited about them or many people were excited about them. It took me a long time to buy a CD player. It wasn't until Frank Zappa put out an album that had material that was extra on the CD for the first time that I went out and bought a Magnavox CD player for $119. It lasted me 12 years and it's the last one I ever owned. Wow. That aside, they never stopped making records. We were told that the price of vinyl uh, was going to stay the same and that the price of the CD, which was very high at the time, was going to re- come down to meet that of the price of the LP. In fact, what, what happened is the opposite, is that the CD price remained almost static and that the price of LPs rose to meet it. And record companies continued, the major labels in particular, continued to press less and less copies of every title they released, and in some cases, none. But they never stopped pressing records, ever. And uh, and so it's an, uh, they, they really tried to kill it because 
it's it's easier to ship CDs. They're smaller. They're they're lighter. They are less fragile ultimately. Um, but CD uh, records never went away. I think it's also interesting to note that CDs are making a comeback, and <laughs> and that is driven, I think, in part by the the fact that large retailers have very uh, to the uh, in the main nixed their media uh, sections. Like you, you go into Walmart or Target, uh, at least I assume I haven't been in a Walmart in 22 years, but uh, in a Target store, there are, you know, there are only a few dozen LPs and almost no CDs. So what we've seen is that people are coming to our record shows and buying handfuls of compact discs. Huh. Also, there's the story that cassettes are coming back too. I mean, it's really a weird thing to see cassettes coming back with limited pressings of stuff or or recordings of things. Absolutely. I've got a stack of Britney Spears cassettes right here. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not. I mean, they, uh, uh, I, I bought them uh, with the thought that, that people were going to want them in Marquette or online sooner than later. You know, they, they make a limited number and then they're gone. And then people say, wait a minute, I wasn't able to get that Britney Spears cassette. I need that. And they, then they buy it from me and John. Jeff's got to liberate those Britney Spears tapes. <laughs> I'm conserving them right now. Yeah. Uh, the quality of sound always comes up when it comes to music and different medias that there are. Even though analog records seem to hold the better, warmer sound. And I mean, there's all kinds of arguments out there about that, where supposedly on analog, you can hear a note that's sustained that fades out a lot longer than you will on a CD or something. So they claim that's where the, a lot of the warmth comes from on the vinyl, which the digital doesn't come close to, or at least it's, it's not yet anyway. Maybe at some point they'll manufacture some way to do it. But um, what do you guys have thoughts on that? Well, Bill, I've never heard one, but I've seen CD players that cost eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars that purport to uh, replicate the sound of vinyl, mm -hmm. which I just find insane that, you know, uh, that somebody would go that far to try to make something sound like something else that we already have. Um, <laughs> Good point. That, you know, I, 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 this doesn't exactly speak to your question, but I think it's, it's illustrative that, you know, from, from my experience anyway, I, at one point um, had thousands of CDs. And then when I, I moved out West, I realized I needed to, to focus on one thing. And I chose vinyl and I'm glad I did. I got rid of all but a couple hundred CDs that were important or weren't available on vinyl. And, and then went forward, mostly listening to records. I was, as many people were, seduced by the availability of online downloads during the era of LimeWire and things like this. And would stay up all night long like an addict downloading videos and, and sound files. And I had accumulated some, you know, 65 or 70,000 songs and, uh, and went to move them from one hard drive to another. And the, in the process, which took 24 hours, the, the machines stripped the data off of, uh, of 90% of them. So here are all the songs, but am I going to go back and, and figure out the order and the titles and the artists? No. I'm not. I cried a little bit. I deleted it all. I shut it down and I've never downloaded a digital file since. And that would have been 13 years ago. So I'm done with digital music. 
I just, uh, I, you know, I don't care what it sounds like anymore. But, you know, I'll, I'll use the, I'll use um, YouTube to preview something if I don't want to open it. If I get something in into my hands that I need to know what it sounds like, but that's as far as I go with digital music. Well, and it's also like, I think this sort of, I don't know, I think about Harold Hill and the music man or like the medicine show that would come to town and the snake oil salesman. And, you know, looking back, I remember the, the allure and the, uh, the temptation of, of, I mean, I remember like high end CDs, gold plated CDs, you know, and all of this stuff. I mean, that, you know, today, I mean, like CDs are making a comeback, but they're making a comeback at like this price point where it's like really like I can grab all this stuff for a dollar or two. I remember when those CDs were $22 or $32. And it's interesting just how the, uh, the allure or the cachet of certain media I mean, even even something like an iPod, which was like the must-have Christmas gift maybe 15 or 20 years ago, is really kind of, eh, you know, even the idea of storing the data on a device, like people are really into just pulling things out of the cloud, listening to it. So it's very ephemeral, you know? Yeah, I have lots of friends that would claim that, oh, wait, I put all my music on, I, I transferred, ripped it all onto um, digital files, and I got rid of all my CDs and all my stuff because... They just took up space and I could have the digital file, but I don't know. I think that kind of defeats the long-term use of music because the, the handheld physical copy of something, whether even if it's a CD or record or a cassette, it's not this. I mean, digital files aren't the same. I mean, you don't have anything to look at. You don't have anything to hang on to. And, and I think digital files can go away easily. That's true. And they can even go away when you own them. Uh, so my brother told me about going to listen to one of his favorite records that he had paid for through Apple music and Apple no longer owns the rights to that album. So they took it off of his playlist. It's gone. Whoa. Right. That's scary. I don't want to be part of that. That's not, that's not cool. Yeah. And I, I I have the fear with digital music that at some point hackers are going to come in and find a way to disrupt the whole, the whole medium somehow. Because they're always trying to find ways to mess things up. Why? Why can't they put something out there in the in the media world for things? I mean, I don't know. I know it's not a, a pleasant thing to think about, but I think it's possible. So I have to interject here because if a friend of mine listens to this, she's just gonna <laughs> tease me to death that I didn't mention this. So I like it all, and I have a hard time getting rid of things. So I have you know, LPs, I have CDs. I even have one of those big CD players that you would strap on your arm if you were a runner, like those things that had vibration control on them. And then you would pop the Shock jams. off of it and smack that <laughs> CD in there, close the lid and push the button, you're off and running. And so it wasn't, I have, the reason I have to tell this story is because it wasn't actually that long ago. I mean, the thing actually still works. And I had a CD that I had purchased. I mean, I'm telling this story because I think in a lot of ways, all of these things answer different needs. The ultimate need is our need for music. But anyway, so I had this new CD. I didn't have time to rip it, you know, all that. So it was, I just grabbed my thing and strapped it on my arm. I took the cellophane off my new CD and popped it in there and ran up to school to pick up my kid. And I encountered this friend of mine who just about fell on the ground. She was laughing so hard at me for having this thing. I mean, who knows how many 
decades nearly, it was out of date, but it worked, you know, for that moment in time, it was the right thing. And then I could listen to my CD on the way to school to pick up my kid. So, you know, I think there, uh, it's just great that we have so many different choices. The one that scares me is that somebody can take it away from you. That worries me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> like it. I don't like it. You know, and I know a, a house fire can uh, take the records away too, but that's not a corporate decision. And it's, you know, I don't want, I don't want my listening in the hands of a corporate entity. Yeah. And there's always, I mean, there's always more records. Jeff brings up a fire. Um, my wife and I went through a house fire about seven years ago and, uh, it really threw your priorities into some real, you know, sharp focus in terms of, okay, what's really important here? And it was actually just before we were to have one of our shows and, and the show did still go on. And uh, I had some dear, dear friends that came forward and uh, inv- gave me some inventory of records to sell because everything else was uh, being restored and picked through and, and sanitized and cleaned. But, you know, I think that we're like temporary custodians of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I, one of the greatest joys for me is that process of, you know, like a, like a, a cycle, you know, where things come in and things go out. And I love to see people walk away happy with new discoveries. That's a really great feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was so, st- so thank you for sending those articles too about the show and various things that you've been involved with. I, I was really struck in there where, you mentioned that a box of records is like a time capsule, you know, for a moment in time. And there's something really compelling about that image. And then Jeff, I think you said finding a record from our, our own past, right. Is like being transported to another time within ourselves, right? Like the whole idea of taste or smell transporting you to another time. Um, but you said, but music is best. And yeah, I, I was really, it's such a cool image and, and so true. Do you have stories about things that people have found at the, at the show? Well, yes, we do. We have, uh, we have some really nice stories to share. Um, in general, it's not uncommon for someone to exclaim, Oh my God, I've been looking for this for so long or, oh, wow, this is the one that my grandma used to play for me, or, oh, this is the one I lost in the flood, or this is the one that I heard when I was at the roller skating rink when I it fell down and skinned my knee, or when I met my boyfriend, or whatever it might be, okay? But we have some, some really outstanding uh, experiences, too, where people will you know spontaneously hug us because it's the thing that uh, that that is is really meaningful to them and you mentioned at the in the introduction that i i went back to school and became an expressive arts therapist and i i i don't think it's a stretch to say that i've seen as many therapeutic experiences involving the passive use of the arts collecting records and listening to music at, in a record show setting as i ever saw in a clinical setting using active art therapy where there's there is something really potent and important about people's experience with the, with the arts. So one is that uh, a fellow came in, and I'm guessing he was uh, 80 years old or so, and uh, he brought a box of of records, a bunch of 45s, and sat with us 
It was kind of slow that day in that moment, which is always a nice thing. It's good to be busy, but it's also good to have some downtime where we can do our, our you know, uh, moving, you know, sorting tasks and moving things around and relax and have a bite to eat and chat with somebody for a little longer period of time. Well, this guy brought in a box of 45s and, and sat on a stool and, and we went over them together with our, 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 our good friend, Jeff at our side and, and this, this older fellow. And he was describing how these records were his wife's and, and, you know, she liked fast dancing. She liked fast dancing. <laughs> and, and we'd go over the individual titles and he'd say, oh yeah, that was a good one. I wasn't so much into the fast dancing, but she'd drag me out on the floor and then we'd do it. And it was fun. And, you know, it, it became clear that he was talking about his wife in, in past tense. So we asked about that. And yeah, she had died some 35 years earlier. Oh, wow. And uh, in the process of looking through all of these records, some of them were, you know, not so interesting to us and some of them were unknown to us. So we were going to have to look them up, which is always fascinating. We found a record uh, from Charlotte, Michigan, from a company that made record at home discs. And now there were companies like this all over the country back oh. in the 40s and 50s where you, you could buy blank discs and you had these little machines or what have you where you could transcribe your own voice or, or play music into it. Wow. And it appeared to us that uh, to be, uh, we looked at it and, 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 you know, obviously it was not a, a black styrene or vinyl 45. It was a flexible cardboard disc uh, with a plastic coating that had been recorded onto, and it had his wife's name on it. And it, you know, it hit me that this is probably his wife and her voice. Oh. that he hasn't heard in 35 years. So we set that aside and showed it, we showed it to him and explained what, you know, I, what I believed it was. And then John contacted our, our good friend, Rusty Bowers, who we've known for 35 years, who was happy to uh, transfer that record to a CD so that this gentleman could hear it again. So transported to another time within himself in a, in a very uh, tangible way. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah, that <laughs> the hair is going up on the back of my neck. <laughs> wow. It's it's a privilege, I think. I, I say this to Jeff all the time, and and there's certain we spend a lot of time together. So there are things that, that I find myself repeating. And and I'm like, I probably have said this before, but I really feel like it is a privilege that we're in this in this position to interact with this very vast diversity of people, every from grandmas and grandpas to newborn babies at these events. It's really everybody. We also get to meet some people that are part of Upper Peninsula history. Mm -hmm. uh, got to know Diane Patrick um, through Snowbound Books when she was at a local bookstore in Marquette. Her husband is Mark Mitchell, who some listeners may know as the man who wrote the theme to Discovering, which is a long-running local outdoors program on TV6. And Mark Mitchell created uh, local recordings, a lot of songs about the UP, about, about the Upper Peninsula history, and, and had these records pressed up. And I remember seeing him play a concert in my elementary school when I was growing up. And mm. th the idea of like locally made music is really enticing to me because it's part of our shared history in the area. And it is like a time capsule, but it's also something that you don't see very often. His particular record had hand-done calligraphy on the back, both the records, by a local artist named Jack Bowers, who originated, and Bill may know about this, the Say Ya to the UPA bumper sticker. And so this bumper sticker became a, a phenomenon 
probably 30, 40 years ago. And uh, Jack Bowers was instrumental in the Hiawatha Music Festival. He's recently passed away. But this calligraphy on the back was really like, it really had this handmade element to it. So Mark and his wife came to our event. We talked a lot. He signed some records for Jeff. We took some pictures. And then he came back with a whole bunch of elements from his original recordings that he gifted to us. And Jeff, the color separations for the album art and the paste-ups for the record. The original and, the original calligraphy that Jack Bowers did. Yeah. And the, he was even telling us how they recorded the record in white at White Pine Studios in Ishpeming and then drove those reels down to a recording studio to master them in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hmm. And, and just thinking about that, like something that you would have to do in the 70s, it was so labor intensive and so hands on. And now here we are 45, 50 years later, you can do it in your bedroom with a computer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Mark, Mark brought us these, uh, these uh, art people, well, the original artwork from the records and gave them to us. So now they go into the archive that, you know, John and I both have uh, places in our home where we have set aside things of, of local interest and mm-hmm. Michigan related. And, and, you know, at some point, uh, hopefully we can find a, 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 a museum that wants that kind of stuff. This story with Mark Mitchell and this particular record, the, the theme to discovering continues though, when a family that we, that we know was uh, in visiting us. So it's a, man and woman and their son. Their son is an avid uh, record enthusiast at 15. And he, he really, you know, has lots of questions and we take time to, to talk to him about, about different artists and share books with them and point out things he might not otherwise have known about. Well, while he was running around looking for uh, Jefferson Airplane and, uh, and Rolling Stones and whatever else it was that day, I showed his mother this Mark Mitchell record that, that Mark had signed. And she said, oh, oh, his dad used to sing that to him when he was having trouble sleeping. And so she took that record home. Right. Uh-huh. So they can listen to it. Yeah, I think somewhere in the articles, there's something about this idea of generations Right, that that music that you associate certain music with different generations in your own family, and how powerful that linkage can be. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to see what people come in looking for and relate it to other generations in their family. Mm-hmm. There was a young woman, a, a probably a high school student actually, who came in and and was asking about the ink spots. Oh, I said, here we go again. Grief. Right. You know, what is it? Well, who, what? You're looking for the ink spots. I can't believe you're looking for the ink spots. And, and we talk about that for a couple of minutes. And then she says, do you have any butthole surfers? <laughs> and I, like, and I, I just felt my brain melt. You know, right, like, exactly. just, you know, I have this teenager who's Whiplash asking for here. What? It's like, And then she says, butthole surfers are my my mom's favorite band. And I, this is just such a, 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 a weird me, moment for me because you know I grew up uh, going to see the Butthole Surfers and they were certainly not my parents' favorite band <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Well, it, I think it just goes to show you how many of the, how the kids that are really into music is so diverse now because they're, they're all over the place because they don't have the same resources that we had to find music. I think. I mean, they're hearing it from their parents or um, commercials or games or whatever the place is, and it's 
the, the diversity is pretty cool. That that's the best part about about this time right now. But and a really interesting thing about what you're just talking about, I think, is that when I grew up in high school and university in the '90s, there was this real pecking order in terms of what's cool and what's not cool. And and I think that that has really been sort of stratified and just you know, almost like leveled out where someone can unapologetically come in and say, you know, I'm looking for the Bee Gees. I'm looking for the Carpenters, you know, and Captain and Sunil. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're right, Bill. It's the, the ink spots are actually featured in a video game that Jeff and I started to research. It's called fallout. And there's a soundtrack that goes along with the game and it features Marty Robbins, the ink spots, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, the the idea that people aren't necessarily hearing these songs maybe on MTV or on the radio, but they'll hear them in other in other areas, and then that that's what pulls them in and makes them curious about different kinds of music that is not just their parents' music, might be their grandparents' music, but also you know the I, I always think it's weird people say this is a guilty pleasure, mm. and I'm always of the mind I'm like there should be no guilt associated in what makes you happy. You know, one of my favorite bands from the '90s. And I'll say it here in a public <laughs> forum was Wilson Phillips. Oh yeah, Wilson Phillips. <laughs> well, they had Wilson that one Phillips CD was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, hold on for one more day. But the <laughs> idea that Wilson Phillips to me was a gateway into like the the catalog of Brian Wilson and the extended family of the Beach Boys and the Mamas and the Papas. But it was definitely not cool. Like the Butthole Surfers were cool. There was there was a real focus on on. On a, on a coolness and an edginess in the past that that really seems to have blurred in some ways in the 21st century. I love yeah. that. I think that's so great, right? Because yeah, some of it was just silly. At least I, I remember that in high school, what kind of music you liked and how you would group with people, you know, oh, they're into blah, blah, blah. It was so dumb. It was so high school, right? Surely we're moving beyond that now, I would hope. And and no one's there to tell the kids, oh, that's not cool because they're discovering it on their own. It's not like somebody's talking about it. They're, they're not like in a group just playing the record or something. I mean, it's just it's just nice to be making your own decisions about music because I always say there's there's really no bad music. It's always what 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 you like, and it can be any genre. I mean, any genre can be. You can say people say, oh, I don't like country. I don't like this. I don't like. But really, they just haven't found the right thing in there yet to help open their eyes to it. So I'm glad these kids are listening to things with an open mind and thinking that, oh, somebody put this in this game kind of thing. And I really like this. I need to find out where, where it's from. And that's that's really that's really such a cool, fun thing for you guys to be able to experience. It really is. It's been wild. Uh, you know, and, and, and we were shocked at first when we, we experienced this uh this rush of people looking for stuff from fallout. I mean, gunfighter ballads by Marty Robbins is probably in my top five sellers for the last four years. <laughs> That's amazing. I was going to say good album. we're, we're consuming so much video now, right. Between streaming and shows and movies and video games that there's all this opportunity for music to to accompany that. But I sometimes feel as though the people who are choosing that music see this as an opportunity, right? Like to expose people to something they might not have heard otherwise. And so sometimes you'll be watching some show and suddenly they play some song. You're like, how on 
earth does the person, you know, who's doing the soundtrack for this thing even know about this song or subtle things, right? Like I'm a Grateful Dead fan. And so I know their music extremely well. And so sometimes you'll just hear like a few bars of a Grateful Dead song and it's like, okay, yeah, I, okay. I saw that. I saw that. (laughs) Seems like back in the seventies, eighties, when they're pressing vinyl, it didn't seem like they were taking a lot of care into, they wanted to want to preserve the master. They'll make a, make the first pressing. And then my understanding was that back then they would take the first pressing and that use that first pressing to make the second pressing and go down the line. So that's why quality kind of went downhill with different pressings of records. I think that's different now because I think people understand how that kind of messed things up. But what do you guys, what are the, what are the better sounding vinyls now? I mean, Japanese pressings, mobile fidelity labs, um, first pressings, and there's a thing called the hot stampers out there. I don't know if you guys know much about that. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the best, best sound? Well, I'm <laughs> glad you asked. <laughs> I've, uh, I've I've been a fan of Japanese pressings. Uh, I think the Dutch have done a really good job pressing vinyl. Uh, generally, uh, there are a lot of uh, records that came out of Germany that uh, were really well made. You know, there's certainly a lot of really well made uh, records that come from the United States. But in general, I think that the the Europeans and the Japanese have taken more interest in taking care of American music than Americans ever will. Hmm. I don't know why that is except that it seems to it you know in my fantasy mind it's somehow rooted in a history of craft in those societies that we don't have the longevity with here and that there's a a a a greater perhaps interest in in the money part of it on the for the business where you know like like it's not as true anymore but for a long time in america artists aged out because they looked old where that was never true in the same way in europe they venerated their aging stars you know in france and and wherever so i think that thankfully that's changing here mm-hmm. but uh whether it'll affect music and and the preservation of music i don't know first pressings naturally are going to sound potentially better than a later pressing of something because it's coming off of those stampers early, which speaks then to that hot stamper idea. I, I've uh, read a fair amount about hot stampers. Um, I can't say that I've ever heard one. I'm, I'm of two minds about this because of course I'm jealous. I'm, you know, maybe not to the point of, of, of envy, uh, but but uh, you know but I I would love to hear them. I would like to be the guy that has the is the conduit and has the the the, the cool stuff you know. But on the other hand, I'm not going to spend seven hundred dollars to hear a Steve Miller record or even a Steely Dan record or whatever. I I over time have found that by and large, a record sounds good to me unless I know it doesn't. If that makes sense. There have been a couple points in my life where, okay, I returned a copy of Black Sabbath's Mob Rules in 1987 because it sounded like crap. And I took home another one and it sounded like crap. And then I found another one that sounded pretty good to me. And that's the one I still have now. And it sounds just fine. Now, if I put it next to the first pressing right off the off of the block, would it sound different? Probably. 
but I don't have that opportunity. So the one that I have right here sounds great. And, and a lot of times it comes down to what kind of equipment you, you're listening on. I mean, not everybody has a high-end stereo to to play. And, and sometimes it's such a nuance to, to hear different quality, but but sometimes it's very obvious. So it depends on your equipment and how far you want to don't go down that rabbit hole, I guess. That's true. I, 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 get a, I got a catalog in the mail the other day that offers me the opportunity to buy a $8,000 power conditioner and then $2,000 power cables to plug into my components. Now, I'm not going to buy them. I don't have a $125,000 turntable, Yeah, but people do. I will say that uh, that sometimes I think that um, high end equipment can show the inadequacies of lesser pressings of records, and you know are not as enjoyable in some ways. Yeah, I have true. a I have a fifteen hundred dollar turntable that uh, that I have have been frustrated with since I bought it and recently switched it out for uh, now. This is a nice turntable, but a Marantz turntable that my dad bought in nineteen seventy five. And I think that has maybe the second needle that it's ever had. And it sounds great. So back when I was a younger kid and probably my 20s or so, I was buying records. That was probably, you know, back in the 70s or so. And um, I figured out what were first pressings from Columbia. You just look at the spine and you look at the code number. And if it started like, like an FC, I think it was, that was the first pressing. And after that, it wasn't. So I would hunt out the ones that had the... Um, the FCs on them. So if you know what you're looking for, you could, you can still probably find that kind of thing, but it just, you have to, you have to really enjoy the hunt. That's true. So with, with all these things going on now with, with vinyl and everything else, what are your thoughts on these box sets that are coming out that have like, like every single version of, of the recording <laughs> of one song all the way up, like, like one CD, maybe one song with 13 different versions of that song, not even full versions, just parts and pieces. What are your thoughts on all the box sets? Yeah, we were, Jeff and I were just talking about this, actually. Jeff talked about the the Robert Quine tapes that he made of the Velvet Underground and how I remember a box set from my college years that my American Culture Studies professor had, where it had like, you know, 14 different versions of heroin on it. But I will say that it's important to be curious and not judgmental, as Ted Lasso says. And the idea that, you know, like, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. You know what I mean? If somebody, if that's going to bring somebody pleasure, absolutely. The other thing that's interesting is look at this Beatles documentary, the get back on on Disney plus nine hours of them playing. I've got a feeling like 15 different times or how many, I don't know if I need to hear don't let me down again after watching that film, because I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm full down. up. like I'm full up on that particular song. Now that almost felt like to, to Bill's question, like a, like a, like a visual box set, because you're like, okay, you want all of the footage from let it be here. You go all of it in, in high definition and every hour of every day during this whole period. And I think there are definitely people that are completists, Jennifer, you mentioned your interest in the Grateful Dead, and I think that 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 the de- the Grateful Dead following is very much about hearing every version of every song, and that's awesome. I always love to hear new stuff. Jeff always talks about we want to hear the music that we're not allowed to hear, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, 
big fan of that stuff. And so, John, you know, I, I think that that music that we're not allowed to hear might uh, dovetail into what uh, I imagine the second part of Bill's question here, the, the black sheep of the of the record industry, the bootleg. I love bootlegs. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah, I love bootlegs. I, 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 the first bootleg I ever bought before I knew what a bootleg was, was called Sweet Sister Ray. By the Velvet Underground. Mm. I bought it from Dearborn Music in it must have been 1984 or five. I think 1985. I was visiting my grandmother in Dearborn. I walked over to Dearborn Music. That day I bought a copy on cassette of the, the Cramps Bad Music for Bad People. I bought uh Motorhead's uh No Remorse in a leather bound jacket. I bought uh uh, a Motley Crue Helter Skelter picture disc 12 inch that my grandmother looked at and said, what is wrong with them? That's not natural. <laughs> That's but the most important natural. thing, the most important thing was this double LP of sweet sister Ray by the velvet underground four sidelong versions of the song sister Ray. And I took it home and I couldn't understand why they would have four versions of the same song. It didn't make any sense to me, but I listened to it all the way through and I was sold. I was sold on the Velvet Underground and I was sold on the on the bootleg. Like, I need to hear everything I can hear by this band. And so I've collected tons and tons and tons of bootlegs of the Velvet Underground, the Grateful Dead, Frank Zappa, on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, even artists I really don't care about, like Meatloaf. I don't really have a fond. I, I love a good meatloaf sandwich. I'm not a big <laughs> listener to a meatloaf. You know, I respect his, you know, his appearance in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he's a songwriter. Well, he's a good performer. I have a meatloaf bootleg because I'm not supposed to hear it. I want to hear it. I, I know this. It's a lot of stuff that, I mean, there's the stuff that's kind of like more pirated where an album that hasn't come out yet, someone gets a hold of it and they, they, they do a lot of copies and that's, kind of the bad side of the bootleg but it's the stuff that you know never comes out all the stuff that you're, you're live, a lot of it's live and, and there are some some stuff that are outtakes and things but you know the ones that make the the real counterfeit copies let's say that's a a travesty there but but all the other stuff all the all the bootleg stuff that's stuff you can't find that you just you hear about oh i mean the great white wonder was one of the first ones back in the bob dylan and they probably had like four or five different versions of that. And I mean, it's just amazing that that's still, it's still out there. There's still bootlegs out there. I go to shows and I, I find bootlegs on CD all the time now of mm -hmm. shows and different things that you just can't find. Cause I, I enjoy that kind of thing too. Hearing the stuff that they really didn't want you to hear or, or they weren't happy with, but I've kind of discovered that even though they weren't happy with something, sometimes it had a better, a better feel to it, better warmth. Like demos, demos to me a lot of times have a more warm, heartfelt feel because they're kind of bringing the song forward a little bit to to do something. And I, I really like to listen to the demos. For the Grateful Dead, you know, a lot of times the songs were prepared in a certain way for radio play. And with the bootlegs, especially the live recordings, sometimes you'll get to hear a version of the song that's really long, especially you know, if they're going from one song to another and folding in covers or or acknowledging other songs, you know, it just doesn't work very well on the radio where they're trying to put advertising in there, too. So, so yeah, there's something that you get. I, I think people turn out to be a lot more tolerant or accepting of long songs 
than maybe was thought back in the day when everything was governed by radio. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think there's a, a interesting democratization that's occurring because of the internet, mm-hmm. you know, where people can really explore a much wider range of available artists and material within those artists and, and listen to, a, a, you know, an entire four hour Brian Eno uh, Thursday afternoon performance production, what have you, and, and, and not have anybody to tell them otherwise, you know, that it should be three minutes or nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what, what are the record buyers looking for these days? I mean, we, we, you kind of touched on that some, but like, are there pattern? I mean, you mentioned the games and like ink spots and things, but are there any other, I mean, personally for me, I, if I hear a song in a movie or a TV show or something, I'll look at, I'll look it up and say, Hey, what is that song kind of spoke to me a little bit? Who was that? What, what is it? But what are you finding as patterns with the, the buyers these days in the, in the stores or shows? Yeah. And I think it, you know, it really depends on like what's happening in the, the larger streams of, of popular culture and mass media. I mean, I think about if somebody's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if they're in the news for some reason, if somebody passes away, mm. if uh, there's a there's a film. I think that Queen, Queen to me, to my the people that we have contact with is bigger now mm. than they were when they were an actual band. And I'm I'm a I'm a Queen fan, like going back to like the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Like that was one of my favorite Queen records. It's an anthem. It came out in 1980. That whole record is awesome. It's like a rock opera. And it, it's the perfect mix of visual and, and rock energy. However, I had to order that as an import CD out of a shop in Green Bay when I was growing up. I mean, it, this stuff was not widely available. Mm-hmm. But now it's like Queen is on the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, Country Roads by John Denver was voted the senior class song for a local high school up here for Market Senior High School a couple of years ago because it was featured in a video game. And this idea, again, that there's no um, up or down, right or wrong. I mean, like Jeff was saying, you know, like mind-blowing, brain-melding moments seem to happen at every one of these events where people will come in. And like I had someone say, I'm a really big fan of Frankie Valley. (laughs) And I need like as much Frankie Valley and Paul Anka as you can find. Now. Engelbert Humperdinck. Engelbert, Engelbert, Engelbert Humperdinck. We have multiple people asking us for Engelbert Humperdinck. What, what age are the people? Like young people or? Yeah. Yeah. College yeah. age. And, and in, in, this is the really important part too, because there's so much of this winky winky, you know, like being ironic and stuff. And they're, they're, they're coming to it with a real earnestness and a real authenticity that they really want to hear this music. And if we can help facilitate or mediate that for them, that's a, that's an awesome place to be and to not fall into the Jack black character and high fidelity of being like, no, you don't want that record. Mm -hmm. Like I really feel like sometimes people come into our spaces and maybe they do feel intimidated or, or cautious about like, Oh, don't judge me, but I want to ask you about this thing. And I feel like we've really over the, the time that we've worked together that, that mantra of everybody is welcome, all tastes are welcome, we want to be inclusive, because honestly, people could sit at home and look at a screen, mm-hmm. but they come to us, and that they've taken that first step, and we want to recognize and, and really embrace that. That's great. 
Yeah, that's really great. I love that. I'm going to keep that in mind. I don't want to yuck on somebody's yum. That's really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you talked a little bit about building community in the record events. So, yeah. So what do do you observe that as people are scrounging around in the record bins? Like, are they engaging with each other or kind of what's the what's the vibe like? Well, John and I are both um, somewhat gregarious and and we're not afraid to introduce people to each other. Mm. You know, John and I have uh, well, we've known each other 45 years, but we've and we see a lot of people that we've known for decades because we do this primarily in the town where we grew up. But we also meet a lot of new people. And when we meet somebody that that we enjoy, we're quick to introduce them to our old friends. And so we see people now who show up and talk to each other across the bins that didn't know each other a year ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's cross-generational. It's, uh, it's really interesting to see older people talking to younger people, which didn't happen so much in record stores when I worked in them. You know, it, it, like I'm just seeing a lot of cross-pollination that, uh, that's really encouraging. So we try to make it a, a place where people can learn about previous periods in history, different parts of the world, you know, entirely different peoples and, and without judgment as, you know, as, you know, John and I have really been committed to, to making that a focus, uh, as he said, that, that everyone is, everyone's welcome. All right. So yeah, I guess I'll wrap it up with this last question. Everyone's getting rid of everything. Well, except me, cause I still have <laughs> all these funky things around to play music. But a lot of people are getting rid of things. That's kind of the mode now is, yeah, strip all this extra out of your life. So what advice do you have for a person who comes across a cardboard box full of LPs in their garage and they're looking at it and certain people around them are saying, oh, you should get rid of those. And what what advice would you have for them about that box? I have a quick answer and then I'll turn it over to John. But I always tell people the best thing to do with records is to listen to them. The second best thing is to bring them to me and John. <laughs> One and two. <laughs> well, if they're close, but if, but if they're not close to you guys, I mean, there's other other resources too. I mean, because this this podcast isn't just for the market area, so or Detroit area, so they're gonna people are gonna go. Well, that doesn't help me. How do I get these records to those guys? Well, you know, in all honesty, you know, they, we can I'm gassing up the van right now. <laughs> Come out to California. Uh, well, it, it wouldn't be the first time. And, you know, people do travel to buy collections and, and people do ship collections to uh, to dealers. But so, you know, it, it, I guess, you know, if somebody's listening and they want help finding a, a place to take them, um, they're welcome to contact me anyway. And I'm happy to to see if I can't dig something up in their area. And, and, you know, certainly they could do that too, but I spend my days uh, when I'm not doing a record show, looking at records online. So I'm, I'm accustomed to doing that search. You know, there are, there are great places in, uh, you know, in Oregon and in California to take records. I mean, you could take your, all your records to a, a giant retailer and they'll give you pennies on the pound, or you can find a, a smaller, friendlier, a record shop or put an ad on on Craigslist and and advertise them uh, that way uh, but uh, but so that was a longer answer John what do you think well I welcome any and all contacts from people because you never know what you're going to find out there and someone may be ready to unload all this stuff and I'm just tremendously excited and over the moon about what they have and 
I, again, it's, you know, it's this idea of passing stuff on. And if people really do want to, to liquidate, to downsize, please contact us. I think that, you know, we like to kind of combine our powers and our skill sets. I mean, it's not unusual for me to call Jeff and turn the camera on and, and we'll go through stuff together, even though we're, in, we're 500 miles away from each other. I've, I've put him in touch with people downstate. I've made drives across the Upper Peninsula to look at things and into Wisconsin. And it's always an adventure. And you get some great fish stories out of it. Again, this idea of, you know, catch and release, catch and release. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you're, you're finding new things. And then you're, and it's really weird because someone will walk into one of our events. They'll walk into our shop. And I may not remember their name right away, but I'll know exactly what record they're looking for. <laughs> And I'll be like, are you interested in this? Or how about this? You know, and it's it's so much fun, this thing we get to do. And I think that, yeah, we really like to to be candid, direct, and, and fair with everybody that we interact with as well. I, I guess one way people can, can contact you and do this kind of thing is I always think that when people want to have a box of records and they want to do something with it is take the video, take your phone, put it on video, and just flip through the records like you're, like you're going through it in a store. So if you can see what the records are, that gives you a kind of a feel of, well, you know, it's a lot of marching band and things that, you know, people do like out there, but it's not going to be, if they're looking to make a big killing on it, they're not going to do too much with it, but at least you can get, kind of get a feel for, well, yeah, you got some good stuff there. So you want to be a little hesitant to just sell it for the whole box for $20 when you don't know what's in there. That's right. Uh, you know, and it may be that somebody contacts John or me and, and we do do that, flip through it together via Zoom or whatever, and there's something that is outstanding and the rest is not so great. It might be worth their time to ship us one record and donate the rest. You know, uh, it's hard to, it's always, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's amazing what will walk in through the door. There, you know, most records aren't worth a lot in terms of money. But some records are worth a lot of money. Some records are worth a lot in terms of people's emotionality and their their remembrance and and their their personal you know feelings. And that's really exciting to me. It's also you know I don't I don't I don't really care if I'm selling somebody a two dollar record if they're excited about it or a two hundred dollar record as long as they're still excited about it. You know, so um, happy to help people if we can. That's great. I'll tell one more story because. As you're talking about this, it's I suddenly recalled this. I'd completely forgotten this. I had a small handful of uh, Grateful Dead albums that I was taking up to a store in Encinitas that bought used LPs. And, you know, they were probably pretty crappy copies, just ones I'd had for a long time or I had duplicates of or, you know, just kind of old and trashed. And I got up to that store and the store was closed. But as I was walking back to my car, there was a kid there with the skateboard and his mom. And um, he said something to me about like, are those, is that the Grateful Dead? And so I, I just held them out to him and was like, yeah, do you want these? And the look that came over his face was just priceless, right? And of course, it just made my day, right, to be able to give some Grateful Dead to this kid with a skateboard. So yeah, you know, it is catch and release. I love that phrase. Uh, I, I, yeah, that was really, him, that was a fun moment for me. You gave him a miracle. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. 
Well, thanks so much, John and Jeff, for coming on the show. It was really fun to talk to you and be able to tell my stories. Um, but before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience uh, be- before we uh, close off? Uh, I have a couple things. Um, if anybody is going to be in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in March uh, of 2022, we already have dates confirmed for our first ORDOC record show of the year, which is March 24th through March 27th. We're there from noon to close, so that's at least 11 p.m. and often 1 a.m. Wow. all four of those days. And uh, we'll have 10,000 records for people to look at, live music, sets, T-shirts, books, uh, posters, and all kinds of uh, fun stories to share. Um, The other thing that I want to uh, uh, say is that if people are looking to contact me, I am at Michigan Records. So that's ampersand, the at symbol, Michigan Records on Instagram. And I post records there that are for sale. and, And people can contact me there. Yes. And, you know, we love that we get a chance to talk up our event because we've had people that have come from as far away as Green Bay, Hancock, Michigan, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, and and the Twin Cities of Minnesota to the show. Oh, yeah, California. That's right. Okay. Well, when we we talk about guests, Bill, we've had people show up and say, you know, people that are there from Italy, from Panama, from all you know and and they like they come in and say i did not know there was going to be a record show (laughs) (laughs) what is going on here (laughs) and and excitedly take you know take lps back to europe with them well marquette michigan has really become a destination for a lot of people over the past couple of years people visiting us for the first time we are located at 317 west washington street in downtown marquette we're called the emporium featuring vintage vinyl we have evening hours, and we're also open um, on the weekends from noon to five. So seven days a week, we're down there playing records, love to host people. And I can be found on Instagram as well. Um, my handle is Emporium Featuring Vintage Vinyl, all one word. So add Emporium Featuring Vintage Vinyl. And uh, people can also contact me, you know, John Teichman as well. So, I mean, we're definitely out there. Um, and I think what it's what it's really about is just connecting people with the things they're interested in. And whether that's close or far away, we're excited to do it. We've connected with so many people over the years that it's just and and it's been great to to get to know both of you as well. I mean, that that Bill came all the way to Marquette <laughs> and 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 we got to know each other and he visited the shop and he came to the show and uh, found some treasures. That's awesome. Thanks, you guys, very much. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.